Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Jay Shaw from Stanford University, talking about careers in hospital leadership. All right, welcome everyone to this evening's Urology COVID Lecture. I'm Simon Conti from Stanford. Tonight we have Dr. Jay Shaw, also from Stanford, talking about how to shape a career in hospital leadership from the point of view of a urologist. He's had great success in this regard, and I've learned a ton from him over the last few years. He completed residency at Columbia, followed by fellowship at MD Anderson, and he stayed on board there for a few years um, as a faculty member and um, robotic cystectomist, as well as a lot of interest in um, QI. And then he accepted a position about five years ago now as an associate professor here at Stanford, and he quickly became medical director of so many things, I can't keep track of it. Um, And even most recently, he was elected as the vice chief of staff for Stanford Hospital and Clinics. And this position has a three-year tenure, right, Jay? Three years years as vice. Three years years of vice, then after that, he basically is the chief of staff, which... It's pretty incredible considering he's only been here for a few years and was running against people that had been here for a really long time. So given this meteoric rise, um, I thought it would be interesting to get his perspective and advice for anyone interested in following these footsteps. Um, so um, feel free to ask any questions in the Q&A box and we'll try to answer them as they come if it fits um, or at the end, depending on the flow of things. So why don't we go ahead and get started and I'll pass it off to Jay. Great, thanks Simon. So you can you can see my title here. I won't waste your time by repeating it all, but I do want to draw a little bit of attention to the last two lines, which are my email address, jbshaw at stanford.edu, and my Twitter handle at bladdercancermd. So if you want to reach out at any point, please use either of those two ways to get to me. I want to give a quick kudos to Simon and Lindsay and all the other relatively young program directors who realized way back, I think it was April or so, that with the acute COVID situation that we had, that there was a huge hole for residents in terms of learning and they quickly organized to to put these talks together. And I know that things are back to normal. I know that a lot of residents are either busy rounding or busy trying to get home and and rest up for your few hours that you have. So kudos to to the program directors and kudos to the residents for for having people in those positions that, that care about you so much. So I'm gonna talk about careers and hospital leadership and uh, before I start, you know, the only disclaimer, only two disclaimers I have. One, I have no relevant financial disclosures. And I know that all the descriptions for the urology COVID lecture say that they're mainly guideline-based. I will say that nothing I speak about today is guideline-based, that there's nothing that you will likely be tested on. But hopefully it is all information that will be very useful to you, regardless of what it is that you think you want to go into in your future careers. So what are we talking about? What what is careers in hospital leadership? Uh, I'll be honest, I was kind of annoyed when Simon told me he volunteered me for this talk because at first I had no idea what to talk about. Uh, I had recently just become vice chief of staff as Simon mentioned, but I wasn't sure how to make a whole talk out of this. But I've come full circle on this and that in preparing for this talk, I've done a lot of thinking and I realize that I'm actually very excited to give this talk because this is information that as residents, you never get anywhere else. So let's just first think about what is it that you might be thinking about? So I put myself back in my brain when I was a resident and thought, well, what did I think about leadership and about future careers, et cetera? 
And I hope some of this will resonate for the people that are listening. And in general, the way I thought about things was that you, you have to decide if you want to go into academics or if you want to go into private practice. And that was sort of the, the big fork. And I'm sure that part resonates with people. And if you decided that you want to go into private practice and never assume that you were going to, you want to make tons of money, you were going to have a big house, fast car, and nobody ever spoke to you about academics again. They'd ask you about, oh, what does your spouse do? Where do you want to live? When are you going to have kids? Those kinds of things. But they stopped talking about academics. If you wanted to go into academics, you know, the next fork was, are you going to do a fellowship or not? And if you had decided that you were not going to do a fellowship, then they basically just make you a program director or first an assistant or associate program director where you get to decide the schedules for who's going where, when. And if you did do a fellowship, then, you know, there's the dichotomy of, did you go, are you a white man going into UNC or was it all others? And if it was all others, then you became faculty somewhere. And if you were a white dude that went to UNC specifically, then they'd say, oh, do you want to be a chair someday? And if you said yes to that, then that meant you were wanting, you know, you wanted to get into that Game of Thrones where you meet lots of interesting characters and your, your fate is uncertain for a long time. So I hope some of that resonates. This is my idea of what most residents think about when they think about leadership and careers. This is certainly the level of sophistication that I was at. Uh, Game of Thrones didn't exist when I was a resident, so some of this is anachronistic, but I think you get the idea. But I think there's more to it than just that. I think there, there's this great wilderness beyond residency that we don't really spend time thinking about in, in any more active way than just what I described on the last slide. So what I want to do today is, is spend some time talking to you about some of what's you know beyond that great wall. So I'll start off by just describing how medical schools are organized. And some of this will sound very familiar or should sound very familiar to, to you because by definition, if you're a resident, then you're in some teaching program. And then I'm going to transition to how hospitals are organized. And this is the stuff I really didn't know at all. And hopefully some of this will be useful new knowledge to you. And then I'm going to talk about from those organizational charts that I'll go over what the opportunities might be for urologists who are interested in leadership and then why you might care and how you get started. So that's the rough outline. And the way that I've timed this, I think it's going to take roughly about 35 to 40 minutes for me to get through this. And I think we've all budgeted one hour. So I would love if anyone has questions, I would love for you to ask it. And I think from what we were discussing before, you're supposed to ask it in the Q&A. I think that's what the instructions were. I may have screwed that up, but maybe you're supposed to ask them in the chat. Regardless, uh, Simon is here. He's going to moderate. So he and Bogdan will both sort of keep an eye on those things to, to see if there are any questions. And I would encourage you to ask questions along the way because I'll cover a couple of different topics. And I have room, like I said, for us to, to stop and, and answer some of those questions. And since the format for these COVID lectures is as a webinar, it's kind of lonely on my side. I don't know if anyone's listening or not. So if you ask questions in the middle, it'll just make me realize there's at least one person who's logged in and listening. So I, I'd appreciate that. Thanks. All right. So to get started, you know, I, I said we talk about how medical schools are organized. So this is my very primitive drawing of how a med school is organized. You could see up at the top here, I have the dean. And, you know, that's not fully accurate because the dean actually reports to someone at the university as well. It's usually some sort of a chancellor or vice chancellor. Regardless, that there's a dean, and then each department within the medical school, so all the clinical departments as well as the basic science departments of that medical school, have a chair. So there's, you know, we all are familiar with our urology department chairs, 
and there's plenty of other chairs, some small departments and then some very large departments. And that person at the top is the department chair. And if we look just at the urology department for a second on the left side, you know, everyone below who is a, an MD or DO in that department it is part of the faculty and the PhDs as well, I should correct, are also part of the faculty of that department. And what the residents on this Zoom call are probably most familiar with are the program director. That's the person, the faculty member or members who are charged formally with making sure that the curriculum is appropriate, making sure that the residents are, are learning all the various things that, that we think they should learn by the end of their time with us. And just to, they're also there to make sure if there's any professionalism or behavioral issues, they handle those. And urology departments in general tend to be fairly small within most medical schools. So our format looks like this in the middle where we have the chair and faculty. For the very large departments like internal medicine, general surgery, et cetera, the department is so large. I mean, there are groups, the medicine department here at Stanford has somewhere around 600 faculty. It would be impossible for that one department chair to try to navigate and help grow the careers of all the faculty members in that department. So they have lots of different divisions. So there's a division of nephrology, cardiology, infectious disease, rheumatology, et cetera, which has a division chief, which, and that role serves to develop the faculty within that particular division. And similarly in surgery, there's plastic surgery, vascular surgery, et cetera, where it's the same format. So that's the medical school leadership. And you know, I've simplified this and I've said that there's just, there's the dean, but the dean is actually the dean's office and that there's a lot of different people in there. This is a, an organizational chart that I took from the internet, I Googled. And you can see the dean is right here in the middle. This is for WashU School of Medicine, in case there's any residents on from WashU. And you can see all those department chairs just get lumped into this one red box on the top right. And then all the other people here in the dark and light blue boxes are the associate and assistant deans. And you can see for most of them, they're, they're doctor deans, they're MDs or PhDs. So the, the dean isn't just one person, it's, it's, a, it's a living entity of about 40 people, usually at most large medical schools. Similarly, this is the org chart for the Kansas Medical School. Again, you can see the dean with the uh, vice chancellor that the dean reports to, and then all these assistant and associate deans below them. And then moving on to the hospital side of things, this is a picture of what's called the hospital C-suite. Again, this is just my simplified schematic. The C-suite stands for, uh, C is uh, short for chief because all the people in the C-suite have chief in their title. So the, the chief executive officer, the chief operational officer, chief financial officer, CNO, CIO, CMO, et cetera. So this is what's collectively known as the C-suite. And they all answer to the CEO who answers to the board of directors. The only one of these people in the C-suite who is usually a physician is the CMO, the chief medical officer. And the chief medical officer usually has a small group of people who serve as associate CMOs underneath them. So this is also somewhere on Google where it's the CEO of a hospital. And then you know, depending on each hospital, you can have lots of different people reporting to these folks that I mentioned in the C-suite. And the people below the C-suite are usually called B-level executives because the C-suite is usually the C-level executives. So this is a, an org chart of the Stanford C-suite. You can see in purple in the middle is David Entwistle, who's our CEO. And you can see, like I just mentioned earlier, there's a COO, CFO, a chief marketing development officer, chief medical officer, et cetera. And Again, you know, David Entwistle reports to the board of directors of the hospital. 
focusing more closely on the part that would be relevant to anyone on this call if they were thinking about wanting to go this route, it's the, the CMO office. If I blow that up, you can see the CMO has people that report to them. As I said, they're usually called associate CMO. So the associate CMO for clinical services, the associate CMO for clinical affairs. And I, I know I don't know what the difference is between those two titles. There's the chief medical informatics officer, the associate CMO for quality and professionalism, and the chief quality officer. Not shown on this side is also the chief wellness officer, which falls under this office as well. So that's the C-suite in the hospital. And that's generally what people think of when they think of hospital leadership. And like I said before, when Simon first mentioned about career in hospital leadership, I was thinking, how am I gonna make this into an hour long talk? But as I said, I've come around on that because I think there's some things to talk about. If you think about it, the CMO, like I said, is really the only doctor in the entire C-suite. And they're the one that's supposed to be looking out for the medical interests of the patients and the physicians and other medical staff. But if you think about it, the CMO reports directly to the CEO. So there's an obvious conflict of interest there where you're pleasing the person who's charged with running the business of the hospital. So you can't really do fair justice to the medical interests if you're also beholden to the business interests of the hospital. So of course, people have thought about this and there are checks and balances that are built in. This again is stolen from Google to remind us what a government with checks and balances would theoretically look like. This may sound not that familiar from recent uh, experiences that, that we've all been, been watching. But in the hospital, when it comes to the checks and balances, every state medical board has a code, has a business and professions code. So I've just put this one screenshot of the California Business and Professions Code, the BPC 2282, which says that for any hospital that has five or more physicians, you have to do these three things, otherwise it constitutes unprofessional conduct. So you have to have an organization for the physicians and surgeons, and you have to formally be able to, to be a formal medical staff that's organized with officers and bylaws with appointments. And moving, you can skip B, it doesn't really inform this conversation, but the most important one is C, that that medical staff body has to be self-governing which means that the CEO cannot be the people that we answer to or cannot be the person that we answer to. It's, it's fully independent and the leadership of that medical staff is elected by the medical staff itself. So I showed you the C-suite before and like I said, that's what most people think of as the hospital leadership, but, but that really is not the entire leadership at all. The other half is that medical staff body uh, led by the chief of staff. So this is from Queensway Carlton Hospital, again, compliments of Google, where the left side is the CEO, C-suite, et cetera. We can ignore that. And the right side you can see is the, the chief of staff who oversees the medical advisory committees and the chiefs of the clinical departments. And these are just the uh, typical departments. Of course, there are others, including urology that are not listed. And then there's the deputy chief of staff or it, what Stanford calls the vice chief of staff. And that's what I am right now. The chiefs of the clinical departments when you're at an academic medical center tend to be the department chairs. But the reason they call them chiefs and not chairs is to make a distinction because the chair is the person that's part of the school of medicine and reports to the dean. Through the hospital structure, the chief of the clinical department reports to the chief of staff. So it's an interesting dynamic where 
in the School of Medicine, the chief of staff reports to their department chair, whereas in the hospital, the department chair reports to the chief of staff. So this is the Stanford org chart for the chief of staff side. You can see again at the top is the Stanford Healthcare Board. The chief of staff is the head of the medical executive committee, and that's comprised of all the department chairs, or in this case, they're called chiefs, and then several members at large who are elected by the departments. These are all the major committees at Stanford that are related to hospital function. And you can see some of the larger committees have lots of subcommittees inside. So in total, there's about 40 committees that the medical staff all comprise. So in thinking about what are the leadership opportunities for urologists, hopefully with those pictures of what the School of Medicine organization looks like and what the hospital organization looks like, you start having some sense for where you as a urologist, if this is something that you would be interested in, can, can pursue leadership opportunities. So of course, the ones that you know about are the program director and being faculty in a department. Those are the people you interact with every day. They're the people whose patients you round on every morning and afternoon. And of course, you know about department chairs. And then there's the dean's office. And just keep in mind, the dean's office is not one person, but really closer to somewhere between 30 to 50 people. And within the department, there are some roles that I didn't show here that are not universal at every urology department yet, but I think are becoming more prominent. I think more and more departments and more and more hospitals are starting to see the value of incorporating quality improvement. So a lot of departments now have quality officers for their department. And similarly, there's a lot of wellness focus going on. So there's a lot of wellness officers that are now being identified and similarly diversity officers. Looking at the hospital side of things, if you really want to be in hospital leadership per se as an in the hospital itself, the most obvious places to, to consider would be the CMO office, either as a CMO or as one of the associate CMOs. And again, this, this represents a lot of different positions. It's not just one or two positions. All the different committees that I mentioned all have a chair as well. So it's, there's a lot of room to have a prominent role in hospital leadership, serving as a chair of a committee, initially just starting as a committee member and then working up to being a committee chair. A lot of these committees carry out critical functions and being, the, being an active engaged member or chair of that committee is a really great way to participate in the hospital leadership and have a say in what's going on wherever you're working. And then of course, there's the formal chief of staff office itself, and that's where I'll be working in, in another short two years. Similar to what's happened at the department level, at the hospital level, there are also quality officers, wellness officers, and diversity officers that are increasingly being identified and physicians are being asked to fill those roles. So that's sort of the, the technical parts of hospital leadership as far as what are the possible roles that you could hope to strive for someday. And I, I hope that all of that was either something you know from the School of Medicine side or something that will be useful to you. And all the hospital stuff, whether you are in private practice or in an academic medical center, the hospital administration and the chief of staff stuff is all the same, it's, it's conserved. So moving on to the next topic, and this is something where if you have questions, like I said, it, it's completely, it won't disrupt my talk or derail my train of thought to, to ask questions here. Why, why bother with all of this? Why, 
why bother trying to be a leader? Why not just do, punch in, do your job, punch out and go home? I mean, th there, there's a certain draw to that. For, for me as well, I have to admit that there's something attractive. So then why, why think about this? I mean, I'm no Nelson Mandela, I'm no Mother Teresa, you know, and you, I'm sure everyone recognizes many of the other great leaders on this picture here. If we're not them, what, what are we doing trying to be leaders? Is there some, some reason to do it? I would argue that there is. You know, we all have worked for, for bosses, for leaders who are fantastic, and we find ourselves feeling more excited to work for that person or in that person's group. I think great leaders instill great staff morale in their teams and, and greater engagement. The, the team is willing to work harder because they like the people and they like the vibe of the environment there. And of course, this leads to less staff turnover because if people are happy and they feel valued and engaged, they're less likely to leave at the first chance they get where someone pays a few dollars per hour more or the commute is just a few minutes shorter. Because otherwise, those things become very appealing and people are more likely to leave. And when you have less, less staff turnover and you're able to build morale and engagement over time, after a while, what you start reaping is, is the benefit of more productivity because you're not constantly just orienting new people and onboarding new people and trying to get people to understand what it is that, that you do. They already know because they're part of it. They're growing with you. And I think these are all important leader, reasons to bother with leadership, but I think as physicians, there's one even more important reason that we all have to acknowledge. And it's not necessarily a good reason, but I think it's still very important to talk about. And that's physician burnout. And I think there's a very, con very strong connection between leadership and burnout. And I'll explain that in just a second. We know that at least a third of physicians today are burnt out. Depending on what survey you look at, it's somewhere between 30% up to 50, 60%. And in some of these surveys, urologists have low burnout rates. In other surveys, urologists have among the highest burnout rates. And there are some colleagues of ours in urology who are doing really good work studying burnout. For the purposes of our conversation here, I think it's important that we just acknowledge that it's real and it happens to a lot of us. And it's even higher the larger the group and, and the less personal the feeling for each specific physician. Oh, I see one question. Ooh, uh, Simon, maybe I'll let you uh, comb through that. There's a lot of uh, parts of that question. Let me just interrupt whenever you've had a chance to process that, Simon or Bogdana. So okay. we'll see if, on it. Uh, read, if it's good for now or later. Okay, thank you very much. So we know that the larger the group setting, the practice setting, the higher the burnout rate. And we know that burnout by itself is bad, but we also know that physicians have somewhere around two to four times a suicide rate compared to the general population. And you know, even one suicide is too much in our in our field. People work too hard to, to, to do that. It's really sad. There's lots of reasons that people give for why they feel burnt out, but suffice it to say that it's real. And I think, as I said, there's a connection between leadership and burnout. And allow me just a minute to explain what I mean by that. We all know that the, the upside of good leadership, as I said a few slides ago, is greater staff morale, engagement, less staff turnover, and increased productivity. So by corollary, it would make sense that with poor leadership, what we see is decreased staff morale, decreased engagement, higher turnover, less productivity. And as a physician, if you're working in a system where you're trying to do things and the staff are turning over 
or it seems like the staff don't care, morale is really poor, et cetera. That's, those are the, the conditions that are the most ripe to create burnout because you feel like you're giving it your all, you spent years and years in training, you're, you're coming from a good place and you're trying to get good things done and no one gives a poop. Sorry, I realized this is recorded. You know, no one really seems to care. And that's what leads to burnout. And if you think about what the signs of burnout are, we all know these well, it's exhaustion, cynicism, lack of, I think that's supposed to say efficiency, desperation, internalizing things and acting out, overworking, showing disruptive behaviors. And if you think about it, those are exactly the characteristics that would define poor leadership. So then we become poor leaders because we're experiencing all these things, which just feeds the cycle more and more. So beyond just everything I said before about why bother with leadership, I think if for no other reason than just a a personal protection standpoint and to value the work that you do and not, not to deal with burnout and not to be struggling with burnout, I think it's important that we start focusing on leadership within our ranks. So this is not at all what this talk is about, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't move on from burnout by at least giving one slide on the antidote for burnout. This is hopefully all things that you know, and you know it, it all summarizes together. If anybody here rides Peloton, you know uh, Cody Rigsby says, get your life together. So this is a, basically the antidote is get your life together, which is so easy to say, it's so hard to do. So obviously work out and eat right, moderate your vices, that's the drinking, the smoking, et cetera. Sleep, I think is so fundamental. I think if you're not getting enough sleep, everything else you're doing, the $300 haircuts and the fancy clothes are, are really not, not hiding much. I think doing whatever you can to de-stress, you know, that includes unplugging from work. This is someone who cares deeply about work, telling residents who spend a lot of time at work, it's okay to unplug from work. It's also okay to unplug from Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. You know, sleep is more important than Twitter. And just try to re-engage back in your life. That balance is so critical. I'm sure many of the folks on this call know Viraj Master at Emory. He and I went for a hike when he was here as a visiting professor a few years ago. We climbed Mission Peak and we talked about the importance of perspective. And he told me that he has a post-it on his car right there. You can see, I asked him to send me a picture later to remind himself when he's going home at the end of a long day where he's been in an OR or a busy clinic, whatever, is a post-it on his steering wheel that says, you are coming home to do the most important work of your day. Just to remind himself to, to give himself fully to his life partner and his kids. And I think that is so amazing. I, I keep showing that off everywhere I go because I think it's a really important message. One of the other things I think is important is to, as great as Smith's and Campbell's or whatever people read now, are, I think it's important to read for pleasure and to turn off your work brain. Same idea as some of these other things. And they say, if you can spend 10% of your, of your awake hours on your passion, you're killing it. That's amazing. So if you're, if you're sleeping eight hours, it means you're awake for 16. If you can spend 1.6 hours on your passion. That would be fantastic. And I know as residents that that is a pipe dream. And honestly, as faculty, that's kind of a pipe dream too, but you gotta, you have something that you're dreaming for. So aim for that. So to finish up with the why bother with leadership, you know, in addition to everything I said, just punching in and punching out and just doing the technical work is, is at some point going to stop being meaningful to you. You're going to become good at what you're doing, whether it's taking out prostates or stones or, or fixing incontinence, fixing, dripping, whatever you're fixing. At some point, you're going to feel like, okay, this is not really 
doing it for me. There's a ceiling on, on how fulfilled you can feel professionally. I think to, to truly grow a program, and I don't mean a department, but I mean that which you do, you have to lead. Otherwise, you're just showing up as a technician. And as this uh, picture on the right says, right, so, you know, in the current healthcare climate, where there are lots of laws being passed and policies being made about how we should practice medicine, I think it's important for physicians to have a voice in those conversations. I'm not saying that you should drop what you do now and move to Washington, D.C. and become a lobbyist. But I think even at each of our individual hospitals and medical schools, there are important conversations that impact what we do on a day-to-day -day basis, and that impacts the care that our patients get. And I think if we're not part of those conversations, then we're going to be victim to decisions that we don't necessarily support. So I often give leadership lectures around the country to various different groups. And one of the comments that often comes up is, well, that all sounds great, you know, fantastic in a fantasy world, but I can't, me personally, I can't lead. I'm just a medical student. I don't have any power at all. Or if they've graduated medical school, I'm just a lowly intern. My job is to just get orders, you know, collect orders from my chief and my seniors, and then just fill out all the checklists and the boxes and make sure that, that everything gets done. Or I'm just a resident. I don't, I just got to get through this. It's super busy right now. I have a young kid at home or whatever. I can't, leading is not something I even think about. Or if they're finished residency, they'll say, well, I'm just junior faculty. I have no power. I'm so busy. I'm just trying to get myself established. I can't do anything. I have no bandwidth to lead. Or if they're senior faculty, they say, well, but I'm not the chair. You know, the chair makes all the decisions. I've been here a while and nothing changes. I just got to put up with it. And that's just how it is. Or if they're the chair, they may say, well, I'm not the dean or in the dean's office. You can see there's always somebody further along that you can say has more power. But I don't think that's actually necessarily true. I think it's critical to establish the difference between the role of authority and the exercise of leadership. These are two very different principles. So you may remember this movie from about 18, 20 years ago, it's Gladiator. And you'll recall if you've seen this movie, and if you haven't, allow me to quickly summarize it, that the snarky looking gentleman on the left here is, uh, this is Joaquin Phoenix. He was Julius Caesar. Without ruining the movie for you, I'll just tell you that he, he basically killed his father to to usurp the throne. And the guy on the right is uh, Maximus, uh, Aurelius Maximus, Maximus Aurelius, I can't remember his name, but regardless, he was a four-star general in the Roman Empire who'd won lots and lots of battles. When Caesar took the throne, he banished uh, Maximus away from the empire and he sold him off as a slave somewhere. And very early on in the movie, even though he was no longer a general, had no title, no one knew who he was, people quickly realized that he had leadership. He exhibited so many qualities of leadership that they got behind him right away. And it was actually very exciting to watch if you've seen the movie. Later on, when he works his way all the way back to the Colosseum in Rome, he, he's sort of not doing anything that the Caesar wants, not even doing what the people want because he's got such, such a moral code and vision that, that people love him for everything that he does because he just exercises leadership in everything he does. Whereas Caesar had all the authority in the world and he was extremely unpopular because he just, he did not know how to influence people. So that's the key distinction between authority and leadership. Authority, you need it, but it's not enough to exercise leadership. What we're all trying to do is figure out how we can constructively influence other people. 
And that's the critical thing. Even if you have a title, you still need to know how to constructively influence people. Without that, you're, you're just wasting your title and wasting the opportunity you have to, to do real good in the world and in the role that you're in. So another way to think about it is that everything that we deal with, all the organizations that we belong in, all the org charts that I showed earlier, yeah, they make sense on some level, but really they're just illusory, that they're just relationships. They're all groups of relationships. And that's what everything boils down to. It boils down to, can you figure out how to manage your relationships? And the skills that you need to practice this leadership are not something that you're either born with or you're born without. It, the, most of these things are things that can be learned and honed. So you may have them naturally to more or less of a degree, but they can still be improved and honed for everybody. So I know that this is not as interactive as I would like, but if I were to ask you right now, what are the qualities that, what are the things you need to know? I'm sure people would throw out communication skills, active listening, giving feedback, and honestly, even more importantly, taking feedback, negotiating effectively, presenting your ideas. Again, that's similar to communication skills, but this is more about presentation formally. Power dynamics. If you think about even the most mundane of things that you might think leadership might be about, financial literacy, bylaws, committee proceedings, work structures, these are all things that we all can certainly learn. We've learned about cholesterol biosynthesis and all kinds of other pathways in medical school. We can learn about these things for sure. So what do you actually need? If you think you might be interested in leadership, what is it that you need to have? Well, one, you have to focus on this in terms of time. If you think that you're going to submit your first R01 on the way to your, excuse me, your first R21 on the way to your first R01 NIH grant and clinically be the busiest person in your practice doing 150 prostates and kidneys and bladders or slings or inner stems, whatever, and you're going to teach the residents and the fellows and you're gonna be a great life partner to whoever you share your life with, and you're gonna be a very present parent, and you're gonna walk your dog twice a day, something's gonna give. So you need to be careful about this. You have to think about how important is this to me, and what is it that I won't be doing if I pursue this? So if you want to be 80, 20 academic and have a huge you know, grant funded lab, it might be hard if you're doing these things. If you want to be the busiest person in your region at whatever procedures you might be doing or whatever office work you do, it's gonna be hard to do this. So think about it, time is a finite resource. We're all only on this planet for a brief few years. So how are you gonna spend those few years? Mentors, you need to have good mentors. You need to have people you can talk to. And I'll, I'll come back to this a little bit in a few slides. They're the ones that keep you grounded when you're when you're starting to sort of go astray a little bit, and they can give you opportunities and lift you up and put you in front of the right audiences sometimes, especially in a small field like urology. And you need to have positive energy. I feel pretty strongly about this. You can't you can't be the person that comes in and complains about everything. Did you hear this? This is so screwed up. Can you believe they did that? So effed up. You can't be that person. That that feels good for a little bit to let people vent and cope. But in terms of being a leader, you, you lose that right a little bit to, to do that. And you need allies. And what I mean by that is that everywhere you go, if you have allies that are looking out for you and speaking up for you, 
it will help you grow your career because you can't be everywhere. Your mentor or mentors can't be everywhere. So when there's a group talking about, hey, we need a good speaker for this, or hey, we need someone to serve on that group, or we need someone to lead this initiative, if you have allies in your field, they will speak up for you when you're not there. And that that's key. And they'll know because it's the kind of thing you would do for them when they're not there. So what do you actually do to get started? What do you do right now to, to start practicing your leadership? So I showed you all the possibilities earlier in those org charts about positions that you could have. Those are formal positions. And you can go talk to people in those positions, especially now in our virtual world. It's, it's honestly, ironically, easier than ever to talk to people about these things. And you have to reach out to them. There's no way a CMO is gonna reach out to you and say, hey, by the way, did you wanna hear about me and my position, how I got here and what the role means and how I contribute to the hospital? That's really not gonna happen. So you have to reach out and you have to be very clear in why you're reaching out. Hi, I'm a resident. Hi, I'm a chief resident. Hi, I'm a fellow. Hi, I'm junior faculty. And I'm really interested in learning more about your leadership position, whatever that position is. Once you frame it in that context, people are going to be more than happy to talk to you. They may ignore you the first one or two times because it may not be very high up on their priority list, but they will be very happy to know that someone is thinking positively about their role. You say, I just want to learn about what you do on a day-to-day -day basis, and I want to learn about what the pluses are, what the minuses are, etc., and what advice you may have for me now. And that's something you can do not just at your institution, but anywhere across the country. So if you think you want to be a department chair someday, I'm not sure how you would know that as a resident, but if it's something you're curious about, you can say, hey, I'd love to talk to whatever department chairs that, that you want to reach out to. And like I said, if you don't hear from them the first time, give them the benefit of the doubt that they're busy. And it's not that they've written you off. They don't even know you most likely. It's more likely that your email got swallowed up in their in basket. And you may just need to, to be a little bit more persistent than giving up after one or two tries. And also, I think it's really important, get your life together. Remember all the things I said about the antidotes for burnout? I think if you can find a way to incorporate those into the daily workings of your life, not just wait till you're burnt out and then figure out how to add those things in, but just find balance right now in terms of sleeping, working out, minimizing your vices, et cetera. I think it's important because we all want our leaders to be balanced. And I think we have to change our mindsets. If, if you want to start thinking about leadership, you have to start thinking like a leader. So you can't see everything as an obstacle and you can't see the whole world as out to get you. You have to think about, okay, what control do I have? What small sphere of influence do I have? And how can I make it better? You know, everything is an opportunity for improvement and you just have to adopt that mindset. And I think you have to be active in learning leadership. It's not one of these things, like I said before, where you're just born with it or you're not. So if you're a reader, there's a whole industry on books about leadership and personal growth and professional development. If you're a listener, there's audiobooks and podcasts, there's leadership academies, there's lots of different ways that, that you can do it. You can just start the conversations with the leaders around you, ask them about their experiences. This is a phrase that I heard that, that I love. I just heard it earlier today. Be the CEO of anything you do. So whatever it is, be the CEO of that thing for that moment. So take pride in everything that you do. 
And just as a CEO is beholden to the board of directors, assemble a personal board of directors for yourself. And, and what might that look like? Once you realize that I'm gonna be the CEO of anything I do, I'm gonna start my personal board of directors. There's lots of different ways that personal board can look. If you just Google the phrase personal board of directors, you'll see all these resources that you can use. This one is one where there's both an external and an internal different type of resource for you, a connector, a coach, a confidant, a clarifier. And the external is a person. It's someone that you know that you can say, oh, you know what, this person challenges me. They're my challenger, you can write their name down. The internal is a memory of something that you've experienced. You can write, I remember this time that I was challenged and here's what I did, etc." If that works for you, great, go with it. If you're more matrix-based, here's something else where there's different personal divisional units, career, family, leadership, finance, spiritual growth, etc., And then all the different mediums or media that you could use in terms of blogs and books and membership in various societies, coaches, specific people, etc. If you're more of a Venn diagram type of person, here's another one where there's overlapping circles of psychosocial support and career support and different kinds of people that fall within. It doesn't matter what you use. It's just the idea is that you want to spend time actively thinking about who am I? Who am I trying to become? Who are the people that can help me and keep me in check and sort of guide me in the right direction? And who am I accountable to? I think this is something I stole from a, a meme or a sign that you may have seen. It usually says 10 things that require zero talent. I would say in the context of a leadership conversation, these are 10 things that don't require a title for you to start exercising leadership. Being on time, having a great work ethic, putting in effort, your body language, having positive energy, having a great attitude, being passionate, being open to feedback and co being coachable, doing extra, being prepared. These are things that you don't have to wait till you become a CMO or a chief of staff or a department chair or someone in a dean's office for you to start exercising these things. In fact, if you can figure out how to display these kinds of behaviors, I would argue it's more likely that that's the path to become someone in those positions. So this is my last slide. I think uh, this is obviously extremely simple in terms of the, the complexity of the slide itself. I think there are lots of opportunities that urologists have to lead both within the departmental school of medicine structure and the hospital organizational structure. I think there are lots of great reasons. Personally, I think there's lots of great reasons to, to strive to learn leadership and to become better leaders for all of us. And it's not something you attain, it's something you continuously work toward. It's like being fit. You don't just work for a certain, you don't just try to lose five pounds. You try to stay fit for your whole life. And, and I would argue that right now, if you're a resident in any program, if you're a junior faculty member, any kind of trainee, I think you have everything you need to get started on this journey. So I will stop there. And these, again, at the bottom are my contact, my contact information, my email, jbshah at stanford.edu and my Twitter handle at bladdercantermd. So please feel free to reach out. If you don't feel comfortable asking a question over this venue, I am more than happy to hear from you by email or direct message on Twitter later on. If you want to ask questions, I see there's a couple of Q and A's and I see Simon and Bogdana are both ready probably to relay those questions. But if there are other questions, 
let's talk. This is for me, this is enjoyable. I enjoy talking about these things. I enjoy teaching about these things because for me, these are the ways that I also become a better leader for the things that I'm trying to do. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Shah, that was wonderful. And I think we all learned a lot from, from your talk. There's some really great questions on some of the areas you've already touched on, but maybe you can spend a little bit more time talking about this. Sure. Uh, for, for those of us that are interested in hospital leadership, we know that it comes at a cost, namely a time cost of other things that people can be pursuing, whether, like you mentioned, more academic pursuits, more clinical productivity, how do you find that right balance? That's number one. And number two, given that we're all hired, at least academically, we can sort of speak to that by the department and the department pays your salary for a certain amount of work that you do, whether that's RVU-based productivity versus grant-based productivity, how does leadership work fit into the financial structure? Is that a competing interest or is that a separate pay stream and we can talk about the academic side of this and then maybe if you can also comment on in the private sector if you're familiar um, if that's also yeah. similarly compensated or does that come at a loss yeah so can, can I take those two before I forget them I can see oh, yeah. number three as far as pursuing hospital leadership and not being interested in grant-funded research I don't think it actually matters if you do it in private practice or if you do it in academics in that the, the skill set is the same. I think you have to think about what is it that gives you the most satisfaction with regards to academics versus private practice. I think the leadership part is conserved regardless of what the answer is to that question. If you are very driven by the financial part of things and you're not as driven by the teaching, et cetera, the things that you see more in a academic center, then I think you could say, okay, I'm gonna do private practice and you could still pursue leadership opportunities in private practice all the same. I think it's not any more difficult in one versus the other. I think the difficulty in academic settings is that we see other colleagues who are writing grants. And we always, you know, if you're, writing papers and writing grants, then you're, you're being academically productive. And it can be hard to, to think, well, how is this work valuable? But if you look at the way that any promotions and tenure committee works at any medical school, one of the key things they always talk about is always service. And hospital service is, is literally what they're talking about. So obviously, if all you do is have hospital service as junior faculty and you're not clinically seeing any patients and you're not academically productive at all, that might be a little skewed. I think you, you'd better be the world's most naturally gifted leader to go straight to that. Typically the people who are doing mainly administrative stuff and less of the other things or very minimal of the other things are people who are further along in their careers who have gradually tapered down those things. As far as the, the cost of a urologist's time, yeah, these administrative positions are definitely bought out. So the there's different rates of buying out based on whether you're a CMO, associate CMO, chief of staff, et cetera. But yeah, so speaking specifically to the vice chief of staff and chief of staff role here at Stanford, 25% of my time got bought out for me to be in the vice chief of staff role. And then once I become chief of staff in two and a half years, it's 50% of my time. So the hospital knows that, as you said, as Dima asked, that 
if you're doing this, you're not going to be generating RVUs. For me, I think it's important that I keep seeing patients clinically because for me, I see the chief of staff role as speaking for all these physicians. And I think if you're not down on the ground, over time, it gets harder to advocate for these people because you don't inherently feel the same pressures if you're not there. So I want to stay clinically grounded. I want to keep my clinic experience just as I have it right now. I'm gonna have to figure out how to give up other administrative things that I do to stay clinically at the same load that I'm at. Did I, I hope I answered your question, Dima. I think there might be a little bit more, a uh, couple more parts we can, we yeah, can please, parse please out in that question and then some of the other questions as well. Um, do you think that with leadership opportunities, does it make more sense potentially to narrow uh, or to remain more as a generalist? Or do you think those two, those are not necessarily mutually exclusive? Can you ask that question again? I was scrolling and sure. trying to get the other question. Oh, sure, sure, sure. So um, it's more thinking about um, if you want to keep seeing patients and operating sort of the same way you do. So in your particular case, you're quite narrow, you're bladder cancer. Um, do you think that if you were more of a generalist where you were seeing a lot of different types of patients rather than oh, I, I see specialized, would, would that make it easier? Or does being narrowly specialized help within with the leadership roles? Yeah, I, I don't, I only have one perspective on that in that I am very narrowly subspecialized. I've chosen only to see, I've chosen only to do oncology and within onc, I only see bladder cancer, not because I wouldn't be allowed to see other things, but because for me staying up to date in multiple different parts of your onc would be difficult to do. So I think it's easy, at least for the way that I'm wired, to stay narrow. But I don't know that I would make a decision of generalist versus narrow subspecialists based on the leadership part. I think if you know that you really, really want to be this kind of a subspecialist, to give up leadership to do that would be wrong. Or vice versa, if you really know that you want to be a generalist, but say, well, because of leadership stuff, I better make sure I go into a very small niche. I, I don't think that would be... I think then you may, you're at risk of losing the satisfaction from the technical parts of what you do and potentially of, of having regret. I think you That's can find leadership. Point. You can find leadership opportunities and you can find ways to exercise leadership, whether you're in private practice or in academics, whether you're a generalist or a subspecialist. I think the leadership, one of the points that I wanted to convey is that you can start exhibiting it now. You know, like I said in that slide with 10 things that don't require a title, those are all, to me, very good signs of leadership. Um, I want to get to this question to give you the chance to answer it fully, and then we'll come back to one of the earlier questions. Looking back, now that you're in this vice chief of staff role, going into chief of staff role, is there anything you would have done differently in your career, or maybe at the start of your career, that you think would have gotten you here better, faster, or maybe would have helped you well, more along the way? Uh, I don't think so. And I'll be completely honest. If you had asked me two years ago, what's your two-year plan? I would not have said, I'm going to be vice chief of staff on my way to becoming chief of staff. I, I didn't, I have not planned. I never had a talk like this. I didn't even know the how, how the hospital worked. I learned sort of on the fly how the hospital works 
after I became vice chief of staff saying, oh, that now I see why that's happening. Oh, that person reports to them. And, and I wish that I had known those things so that I could have been more informed. I think I got very lucky in that I've landed in a position that plays to my natural strengths in terms of dealing with people and still allows me to do the things I like to do clinically. So I think I was fortunate. So looking back, the one thing I, I wish I'd had was these kinds of conversations. I wish I knew there was such a thing as a personal board of directors. I, I wish that, that someone had taken the time to explain the hospital structure to me. That, that was all new. That was, I didn't know it then at all. And then with, with that in mind, knowing that urology is a small department in the hospital in most places, in that role of vice chief or chief of staff, how do you align other people in other departments to follow your lead, knowing that you may be coming from a smaller place than they are? Yeah, I don't think it's, a, it's an impediment that we are, by definition, going always to be one of the small departments in a hospital. I think even if you were a general surgeon, and, you know, surgery is usually one of the bigger departments, or even if you were an internist, internal medicine is usually the biggest department, Let's say you're in internal medicine here at Stanford where there are 600 faculty members and the total faculty size is somewhere around 2,800. You're still not speaking for the majority of people. I think it's actually helpful to be a urologist because we're kind of like Switzerland in the sense that people assume that, oh, he's a surgeon or she's an internist or he's a psychiatrist or she's whatever. And they assume that you're gonna have certain agendas Whereas urology, we're kind of medical, we're kind of, I mean, we all think we're surgical, but through this, we do a bunch of medical stuff too. We do a bunch of surgical stuff. And, and it allows us to, to stay a little bit removed from, from being pigeonholed in that way. And once you become part of a group, all those other things of what you are in terms of your specialty end up not mattering. It, it's more what your behaviors are, how you communicate, all those other things that we spoke about. I think you're still muted, Bogdana. Well, I wasn't saying anything important. Um, but I do want to get back to one other question here. And that is, how do you make the time? So a lot of meetings happen to be when we're in the clinics and in the OIs. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, now everything's happening over Zoom, but hopefully eventually there will be in-person meetings and even Zoom meetings take a certain time out of your day. If you're starting in leadership where your time is not yet bought out and paid for, so to speak, and you're trying to get into these meetings, how do you do it? How do you try to protect your time? Yeah, you know, one of the things that I've heard surgeons say before is this, you know, these meetings are happening when we're not there. We can't, we can't attend noon meetings because we're operating. It's, it's just not something we can do. The, the truth is most meetings are horrible. <laughs> you know, if you look back in any given day, a lot of the meetings that you attend, nothing actually got done. So you don't have to feel like, if I can't get on that one committee meeting or I can't make that one thing, my career is never gonna go anywhere. I think if you can get on the most mundane, boring, go nowhere committee and have everyone feel like, hey, you know what? She's doing an amazing job on that committee over there. You're naturally gonna be asked to be on some other committee. And, you know, early on in your career as junior faculty, you're just trying to get on a committee or just be noticed. After a while, you start being asked to be on committees. And, and the way that you're asked is the way that people portray you. The, the 
where your allies, you know, I said create allies, whether your allies think about you and your effectiveness. So if you're effective, it doesn't matter if you're not on the right committee, just be effective wherever you are. Cause that's, that's the message you want to convey that it doesn't matter what you ask her to do. I know it's going to be great because then people will start saying, you know, let's get him in front of that committee. So now I'm at the, the happy position where people will reshift a lot of committees for me where they'll move committees and we'll say, oh, well, I can't, you know, I'm an OR on that day. And we'll say, okay, we'll move a bunch of things over. And of course, now I'm also a little further out and I have the flexibility of, of rearranging my own schedule. And I've had colleagues that have been really helpful to, to work with me on that. And having the support of your chair is of course, I mean, that's a common answer to everything. It is always critical as well. Talking to your chair and saying, here's what I'm working on. Here's what my goals are. Not necessarily that I want to be chief of staff in five years, or I want to be CMO in X years, but just saying, here are the things that I would like to develop. And having that conversation with not just a chair, but also the other people in your personal board of directors, I think, I think that's more important to me. So I think we awesome. are right at time. I know. 5.59. So again, there... please reach out if you want to talk later. I'm happy to continue the conversation. Excellent. Well, it looks like we've answered all the questions in the Q&A. Um, everybody has Dr. Shaw's contact info. Thank you everyone for tuning in and for everyone watching this recording later. Uh, you can always contact us and Dr. Shaw directly with any additional questions. Happy to all hear right? from you. Thank you, Simon. Thank, Thank you, Bogdano. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.